Welcome all of you to this OIC podcast. Yesterday we had some technical issues when recording during our service. So I'm recording this again so that you all who follow the podcast can still get the message from yesterday. I guess we'll lose some of the ambience of having it at the service, but still you get to, I get to share the message with you as well. So yeah, let's do this. We recently bought a carnivorous plant for our apartment. And we bought it to help us deal with unwanted guests. Of course, I'm talking about insects. I don't know why you would think of anything else. And it's called a Venus flytrap. And the way that this carnivorous plant works is that it attracts insects with its color and scent and all other kinds of insect-pleasing amenities. Then once the insect is inside, it finds its, itself stuck, unable to leave the sticky surface. And as it realizes its doom approaching, the jaws of the plant, and this plant literally has jaws, the jaws of the plant slowly close over it and seal its demise. It's summer in, in OIC. And every summer we take our time to appreciate the songs and prayers, the chants of the book of Psalms. And we wonder among them, like, like among flowers in a summer field, taking our time to appreciate the hues of color, the scents, the shapes that these Psalms take in all their beauty. But this week, I ended up in a Venus flytrap. I thought I knew I was do what I was doing. I, I even had a note in my little notebook about what had attracted me to this particular psalm, why I wanted to talk about it. But once I was there, trying to appreciate its color, its scent, its shape, its structure, I suddenly realized the unavoidable jaws of biblical interpretation closing over me. I survived. Not unscathed, but I survived, and I'm here to invite you into the jaws of Psalm 82. And this is how the psalm goes. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. The note I had on my little notebook about Psalm 82 was a question. And the question was, do we thirst for justice. That's what had really spoken to me when I first read the psalm and meditated on it. 
It was verses 2 to 4 and verses 8 that rallied me to the psalm. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the weak? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rise up, O God, judge the earth. But then I picked up my notes and I went to do my homework in preparing for today. And I went to different Bible commentaries and footnotes and study Bibles and all that sort of thing. And I got increasingly frustrated. All these commentaries and studies, all of these, they seem to just brush past verses 2 to 4. And it was really verse 1 and 6 that they were hooked up on. Who are these gods that the psalm talks about that was the big question who are these gods is this some cosmic courthouse thing is this a judgment over pagan gods are these demons who are they that's what the commentaries really wanted to discuss and there's all sorts of theories out there one of them is that this is a reference to pagan deities and and I think it's helpful to our modern minds to remember that in the ancient world, this would not be a weird understanding, really. Even the Jewish monotheistic faith of this period did not imply that there were not other sorts of spiritual beings out there, but rather that there was one God who was above and before whatever else might be there. But still, there are, there are a lot of issues with this theory, which I will not go into right now. Besides a couple of other odd interpretations, there are two more main understandings, we could say, which I find more relevant. One is that this was a reference to pagan authority, so non-Jewish people who had positions of authority. And the reference to their divinity could even be in sort of kind of an ironic jab at this very common amalgamation of political and divine power in the ancient world, of course, because we obviously don't engage in this nonsense of justifying political power with arguments of divine justification, right? But that's one understanding. The other is that this meant the judges and the rulers of Israel itself, and that the use of the term gods had to do with the context described in verse 6 of them being people of God, the ones to whom the law had been given, and especially addressed toward those among them entrusted with authority over others. Now, we could go into further details on, on all these theories, but I won't, because at this point, I was getting really annoyed. At one point, I found myself arguing with this Bible commentary in my hand and screaming at it, but what about the weak and the needy? What about the oppressed? What about the poor? Being dead a long time, of course, the author of the commentary couldn't really defend itself from my rage. And anyway, it was kind of too late. The flytrap had closed over my inquisitive mind and I could no longer not consider these, matter, these matters. Who are these gods? And as I tried to find my way out of this, I found out that Jesus had been set in a similar trap and that he had escaped. And I want to read a story for you. It's in the Gospel according to John at chapter 10 from verses 22 to 39. And it says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. 
The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So here we have Jesus in an argument with a particular group of Jews who were not particularly fond of him. They were well versed in the Torah and the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish religious law, and they opposed Jesus. These guys try to corner Jesus and they press him for a clear answer if he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God or not. Of course, they were not so much interested in the answer as they were in finding some way of accusing Jesus of being a charlatan and catching him on some kind of theological slip. Jesus answers uh, along the lines of saying, well, don't you know the scriptures? Haven't you been observing my ministry? What do you mean I haven't told you? Don't you see how my ministry is perfectly in line with God's will, even as it is displayed in your own scriptures? Your problem is not that you don't think I'm doing God's will. Your problem is you don't like me and you want to get rid of me. And they are not happy with Jesus' answers, of course, and they want to stone him because he keeps on calling God Father and saying that he is one with God, therefore he is claiming divinity. Or at least that's what they say. They say that the reason for stoning him is not his good works, but his blasphemy. And then Jesus turns their own argument against himself and throws Psalm 82 at them. He quotes directly from it, and being learned in the Jewish scriptures, they knew it. And here is why I said, and I think that Jesus is on my side on this. Well, for one thing, I personally tend to favor, or maybe I'm on the side of Jesus, right? Okay, point taken. For one thing, I personally tend to favor the early rabbinic tradition that interpreted 
the gods in Psalm 82 as referring to the rulers of Israel. And that's because of the standards that the psalmist holds these rulers against, which are the standards of the Torah, of the Jewish law. And also, saying that it's pagan rulers feels to me like we're trying to divert the blame somewhere else. It seems from this passage in John that Jesus interpreted the psalm in this way. Right? He called them gods to whom the word of God came. And for a Jewish listener, this was obviously obvious who you were talking about. You were talking about Israel, those to whom the word of God came. But the main reason that I say that Jesus is on my, my side on this is because it seems to me that he brings Psalm 82 to the table not so much to resolve the issue of his divinity as to expose the hypocrisy in the argument of these men who opposed him. All this talk about blasphemy was a ploy, a smokescreen. They weren't really concerned that the will of God be done. They were concerned with getting their will done. And what they wanted was to get rid of Jesus, whom they saw as a troublemaker. If we look at Psalm 82, whether these gods were divine beings or human rulers, they are ultimately condemned not because they are humans or some sort of spiritual being, but because they fail to engage with God's justice and mercy. Because they don't care about the weak and the poor and the oppressed. That's what brings them condemnation. Jesus' Jewish opponents, on the other hand, they are ignoring that which is central to God's will to focus on a theological technicality that serves their purpose. And it's not that the theology isn't important, but that when it serves our purposes, while purposefully ignoring the enactment of God's clearly revealed desire for mercy and grace, well then it becomes an instrument of death. And that is how it is being wielded against Jesus. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy with how he alludes and interprets and uses Psalm 82. But there's more. As I got excited about what Jesus does with Psalm 82, I started seeing even more connections and getting excited about what John, the gospel writer, the gospel teller, does with what Jesus does with Psalm 82. Because this clash between Jesus and these particular Jews is not an isolated event in the Gospel of John. It's part of a wide context and is placed strategically in how John tells the story of Jesus and tries to convey to us that this story is gospel, good news. This discussion about who Jesus was, was he the Messiah, was he a prophet, was he a fake, this discussion doesn't come out of the blue. In fact, the identity of Jesus is one of the main themes and a red thread crossing the gospel of John, not just in the sense that who Jesus is is a central theme to the gospels in general. John is actually directly addressing this all the time, and his writings are full of dialogues and discussions that are precisely about this very question. But the thing is, these arguments around the identity of Jesus in the Gospel of John, they do not emerge from mere theological inquisitiveness. Throughout the Gospel, they emerge from Jesus' interactions with people, especially people on the margins of society. And they emerge from what here in John 10 are called his 
works, his healings, miracles, and the very concrete things he does as he goes around, like walking on water or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey or sitting for a meal with sinners, as they were called. John doesn't discuss the issue of the identity of Jesus as an isolated issue, but purposefully intertwines it with all these events, all this lived life of the incarnate Son of God. I realized that having Psalm 82 in the back of my head while reading throughout the book of John, I could recognize a striking overlapping of themes, some of these themes inherent to the psalm itself and some to how its interpretation has been discussed. Psalm 82 is dealing with issues of authority, divinity, justice, judgment, and, for the good reader, redemption. The psalmist is affirming that God has authority over all and that whatever other authority there is, is ultimately subject to God's authority. And so, argues the psalmist, it is God's to judge over all, and whatever judgment is enacted on others is ultimately subject to God's judgment. Also, divinity, in the context of Psalm 82, is subject and in relation to God. Whatever understanding of divinity may be ascribed to other authorities, they are ultimately finite, limited and mortal before God, who alone holds the power of life. Now, all of this, the psalmist brings up to call attention to what? To God's agenda, to God's priorities. Because if God is the ultimate judge and the superior divine power, it is by God's will, by God's priorities, that authorities and divinities will be measured and judged. And what is God concerned with? Justice and mercy. With the weak, the poor, and the oppressed. With the bleeding and the needy. And because God is concerned with that, God is the one whom the psalmist calls to for redemption. Rise up, O God, judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. Now, I, of course, don't really know if John had Psalm 82 in mind as he was writing the gospel. But I do know that as I read through John with Psalm 82 in mind, Jesus ticks all the boxes. He is revealed to have authority and divinity that are the Father's and therefore to be one with the Father. And his good works prove to not be a side note, but a fundamental expression of precisely that, that Jesus is one with the Father because he shares the Father's heart, the Father's priorities, the Father's justice, mercy, and grace. When the teachers of the law want to just discuss Jesus' identity apart from his works, they just reveal their blindness, that they know nothing, understand nothing, that they walk in darkness. John keeps on intertwining Christ's acts of mercy and justice and grace and love with all these discussions about his identity to say, if we try to separate these things, we won't get 
Jesus. We won't understand him. We will not truly believe him. Jesus is both the judge and the one who truly fulfills the heart of the law. And he expresses shamelessly what they should already have understood from the law itself. That the law is because God cares about the people, not because he cares about the law. That God's priority is life and redemption. Jesus is the one who presides in the great assembly and he is the one who in that same assembly defends the weak and the fatherless, the broken and the needy. The one who brings light in darkness and makes us sons of God, bringing life where there was death. It is to him that we call for redemption. Rise up, O Christ. Judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. So I guess the, the Bible commentaries might have had a point after all. It is not that the social justice issue is not important in the psalm. It obviously is. But it is not really the theologically enticing feature of Psalm 82 because it's all over the Bible. There's nothing unique about Psalm 82 in that sense. But the whole discussion about who are these gods is not only more theologically enticing, it also catches us in its jaws. It raises questions of what do we do with justice and mercy? What do our authorities and use of authority and power do with justice and mercy. Who are we? Who are these gods? In the context of John and of the gospel, it leads us to ask, who is Jesus and who are we because of him? What do we do with the divine revelation that is given to us and is to be embodied in us? Do we embrace it? Or do we dismiss it with theological nuances? Perhaps we embellish it with identity discourses that enable us to show partiality and think we can get away with it. Are we concerned and engaged with God's life-giving agenda, which is displayed all through the scriptures, both in the Psalms and the Gospel of John? When we hail him as king, are we ready to go with him into the upper room where we share bread and wine, body and blood, and wash feet? We who sing and shout, rise up, O Christ, to judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. Who are we because of him? Rise up. O Christ, judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. Judge it with the justice and grace you have revealed in your life and ministry, the redemptive power of grace. Who and how are we who inhabit that space of grace? May the Lord 
bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and into the reality of your life, into your joy and into your brokenness, into your hope and into your despair, that God may turn his face towards you and you may know yourself to be seen. And so, may he bring you peace and may we go in the peace of Christ and serve the world and the Lord joyfully. Have a great week, everyone.